I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. And you're listening to Deep Cut. So what do you all think of Ryan Reynolds having a midlife crisis? No, Ben, you're thinking of Green Hornet. Oh, this is a terribly scripted joke. Désolé, désolé. <laughs> <laughs> In Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss that director's life and career to bring in context that helps us view their movies as they may want us to. All right, dudes. I'm so ready to talk about Romare. Yeah, dudes. I think I'm saying it right. Romare. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to launch into this. All I can say is I didn't even know who Romare was until this year, which is <laughs> kind of ridiculous when you think about it. I'm kind of a failure of a film student, but... <laughs> no... But in the last three months, I watched Don't 16 Romare features, <laughs> and, oh my which is God. when I put it in those numbers, I'm like, that's a yeah, lot. You are not a failure. <laughs> that is over a day's worth of viewing. I'm overcompensating. But <laughs> after the marathon of watching or the very extended marathon of watching all these Romare films, I can really say I love this guy's work now. Nice. That's great. Which I'm very happy about. I'm happy to talk about these movies with both of you just to maybe give us some background, what other Romero films have you all seen? Or is it just The Green Ray? <laughs> it is just The Green Ray, which I caught at a... In Hong Kong, they were doing a whole Romero retrospective. And oh. my dear friend and very famous Letterbox user, Ethan, <laughs> invited me to see The Green Ray with him because Romero is one of his favorite directors of all time and i fell in love and i said back then i it, it was time to dive into this filmography and <laughs> that was march and now it's july <laughs> it's time to start <laughs> yes it is similarly to wilson romare is someone who has been on my radar for a long time got strongly recommended to me by a colleague of mine in this past year i always sort of knew that once i started watching romare I'd probably fall in love and like the work a lot. And this is my first Romare, Green Ray. can say right off the bat, I really like it. And I'm excited to watch more Romare. Nice. Yeah. I'm probably doing two deep cut picks. Spoiler <laughs> alert. That's good with me. <laughs> Here's my justification. Just like a proper good Romare man, I got to justify myself. Which is <laughs> that with Romare, he has so many films and they all speak to each other and they kind of explore different facets of the things that he's exploring, at least with his contemporary set films. And it's so difficult to just do a deep cut. I want to give you all the breadth of Romare mm. in the very limited scope he has, which is young people in love. <laughs> Before I think we go into the Green Ray, I just want to talk about Romare himself, maybe get some background, which can give everyone a little clue into the kind of person he is. Kind of an odd man, actually, when I tell you all these things. So Romare, Eric Romare, <laughs> was... <laughs> He was born Jean-Marie Maurice Scherer. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Chacrel? Chacrel? Eric Romare is actually a stage name that he came up with. That's actually, he pulled it from two different people. I'm not sure who. Oh, if I'm not wrong, Romare is the name of Fu Manchu's dad or something. Like, kind of like a very odd pick. Yeah, so that's where that's from. <laughs> he was born 21 March 1920 in Tour de France. Man was old when he started wow. making films or when he started appreciating films. Hmm. And kind of the most notable personal life thing is that he kept his filmmaking career a secret from his family. <laughs> For how long? Oh, his family didn't meet his close film associates until he died. 
what? So at least his immediate, like his wife and his kids knew that he made films, but his mother didn't, and she died not knowing he made movies under the name Eric Romer. That's a bummer. <laughs> so I guess filmmaking really is an embarrassing career. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, why? Yeah, why? I don't know. What's to be ashamed of in Green Ray? It's a perfectly nice movie. Yeah, and you're making movies, and they're, they're successful movies, and they're not really harming people. Yeah, nobody knows. He, he really kept to himself. He was a very private person. He really kept his film life and his personal life very compartmentalized. Hmm. Not sure why. Hmm. I have some nuggets of information that maybe clue us into those inclinations, but we'll see if they come up. He had very little interest in films when he was young, but he wrote a novel at 19. He was a very precocious, like, young teenager or young man, and he was very good at, apparently, philosophy, literature, drawing, music, and theatre. He was very intelligent in the most kind of dictionary sense of that word. And then it was only later on that he really caught on to films. That makes sense watching his movies, though, because... They're literary and very yes. dialogue-heavy, but still very smart about how it's using visual language as well. He references a lot of books, writings, mm-hmm. writers, philosophers. His characters are always talking about their thoughts and other thinkers' thoughts and how they kind of use those ideas to build the identity of the character. And then another key thing about Romero is that he was a Catholic, which is very important when you watch some of his films, which are very concerned with matters of faith and religion. Hmm. The most notable one would be My Night at Mods, which is some people's favorite Romero film, which is about a devout Catholic man who sees a woman in a church and is like, I'm a marrier. And then oh. that night meets another woman named Maud who gets sexually interested in him. And then he's like, nope. I've promised myself to a person I've never met. Ooh, that's interesting. What a premise. Pretty interesting. It's one of his most dense, most dense in terms of the references. It talks a lot about Pascal's wager, which is about religion and faith. But yeah, we're not talking about my name. Pedro Pascal's wager? (laughs) (laughs) What did he wait? To take off his helmet or not. Yeah. Mando. (laughs) So Romero met this man who I'm not really sure... So much because I don't know too much about the French New Wave. But he met Alexander Astruc, who was somebody who was kind of big in the early film circles in France. And he was an early editor of the Cahier du Cinéma, which is the legendary... <laughs> AKA critic- the most snobby film of <laughs> people in the film, <laughs> like the film yeah. critic world. Movie street. It's where we get auteur theory from, or the politique des auteurs. <laughs> <Ooh. laughs> I I want to note here is to call out Romare, who apparently when he was first writing there wrote a lot of like very intellectual essays that are apparently very interesting, but also full of sketchy racist shit because he was saying very like Eurocentric stuff and like kind of saying that European films would be better than Asian and Indian films for God knows what reason. Yeah, not random, but sounds terrible. He he kind of said that he doesn't he doesn't really stand by those views anymore because they were reactionary, but who knows? (laughs) Well, Romero doesn't really stand by any opinions anymore. Since he's... Because he's not standing. Dead. He's lying. <laughs> <laughs> he's Rip. laying by them. Rest in peace, Romero. I love your film. If you're listening. R.I.P. <laughs> the dead listen to our podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's why our numbers are so high, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and to kind of just give a very broad overview of his work, his work is a giant tapestry of straight white people in France. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> and it's a very pleasant and nice to watch tapestry of straight white people finding love in France. And then he sprinkles in a bunch of period films, which I haven't seen any yet. 
And I'm very curious to see what his period films look like because he made a bunch of those. So I have nothing to say about those yet. In terms of his filmography, he made 22 feature films. Wow. And the first that he made, The Sign of Leo, he made when he was 39, which is very interesting because the other Cahir du Cinema bad boys like Truffaut, Godard, they were making films in their late 20s. But Romero was kind of the godfather of the movement in a sense because he started really late. But he was also sort of a mentor to them and they all really looked up Hmm. to him, even though they kind of made it before he made it. But after his first feature, he launches into the first of his three cycles of contemporary set films about romance, which is the Six Moral Tales, which was two shorts and four features, which are actually all based on the premise of F.W. Murnau's Sunrise. Oh, I love that movie. Yeah, which I haven't seen, but it's based on a very skeletal sense of that film, which is that a man commits himself to a woman, but then another woman comes along and he has to choose between two. Hmm. That's it. Mm. So all the moral tales are using this skeleton to build the stories around, which Minot and Mods is a part of. And it sounds like he's pulling from the narrative of Sunrise, not so much the visuals. Yes. Okay. And then he follows Six Moral Tales, the second cycle he has, the comedies and proverbs, which the Green Ray is a part of, which are based on little proverbs or sayings. Some are written, some are made up. It's actually not important what the proverbs are. <laughs> They're just kind of a way <laughs> for him to create ideas and to organize them together. But the key is... That in the six moral tales, the main characters are mostly men, but in the comedies and proverbs, they're mostly women. Mm. And so you have two very distinct perspectives, I think. And he's really interested in the sexual mores and like the the ways that men and women relate. That's what his films are mostly about. And then the last cycle he does, which is the last cycle of contemporary set films, is the tale of seasons, which is four films set in four seasons. And they're also about romance. And they're pretty good. Wait, so is the Green Ray part of the comedies and proverbs yes the comedies and proverbs where do his historical period films slot into those cycles they kind of are sometimes in between cycles sometimes in between films in a cycle there's not much of a pattern he worked constantly he made so many films in his life and those cycles actually take quite a while to complete if i'm not wrong like they would take almost up to a decade to finish one cycle and he was working for such a long time his first cycle he made in the late 60s early 70s for six moral tales and then the comedies and proverbs was i think the late 70s and early 80s and then tale of seasons was in the 90s Mm. they are also really interesting because they are essentially little snapshots of three distinct decades in france and Mm. they're really interesting to watch just for that just to see the fashion and to see the streets change. (laughs) And I just really like that. I really like when filmmakers become a part of history because of the periods that they're working. The only other thing to know is that he had a very small crew or he started working a very small crew and then he was paring down the crew sizes and he like fired the script supervisor first and then he got rid of the assistant director. And then when he was shooting a green ray, apparently on set was mainly just a camera person, sound engineer, Romare, actors. That's it. That's very minimal. We love that. Shout out Old Joy. <laughs> yeah. I could tell there was no script supervisor at a couple points. A beer glass <laughs> refills. <laughs> so that's kind of all I have for basic background on Romare. The last thing I want to touch on is who he has influenced. And he has influenced many filmmakers. The first one I want to name is Linklater. Because his before trilogy owes a lot to Romare's films. The talky mm. nature that it's about young love. But I think the one that I'm thinking of the most now is Hong Sang-soo. Whose films... <laughs> are very, very similar to the way Romero films are in the way that they're shot and the way that they unfold and the talky nature of them. Wilson's making a lot of faces. (laughs) And the pace at which Hong Sang-soo makes his films. And I think Hong is my boy. 
Kong. <laughs> Kong makes more films. I think he's made more films than Romero at this point. <laughs> I think so too. My journey with Hong, I feel like, has really prepped me very well for the start of my Romero journey because mm. I do feel like the films are so similar in how they feel and how you feel watching them and getting out from them that every subsequent film you watch from that director you sort of reflect on the filmography as a whole. Mm. And it really is a greater understanding of the body of the work makes each subsequent film you watch even richer for you as a viewer. There's so many links, I feel. Like, because even having not seen any of the Six Moral Tales, I sort of get an idea of what a Romare leading man is because mm. Hong Sang-soo leading man <laughs> operates very similarly. They're just Maybe. like, well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But you'll find out. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. And Hong just churns out these movies so fast. They're really short movies as well, which I looking over the runtimes of the Romare films, they are pretty short as well. It's sometimes just like lovely to sit in mm. and to experience. And I think a lot of the appeal of the Green Ray was just experiencing the moment with them, with these characters yes. and in these beautiful places, just talking and having these conversations that like maybe ev like even you would have with other people as well mm -hmm. and have these concerns and life shit you know exactly <laughs> and i'm excited to dive into hong's filmography with you guys on a future oh, date I'm well, so ready, actually. Romare 2.0. And I know because Ben has had this like Epiphany. same same relationship with Hong, but hasn't like passed the gate of loving it yet. But I think I needed Romare to push me yes. in the right direction, yes. which is what I'm actually very grateful for. Because I feel like he just kind of changed the way for me to look at certain kinds of films. Yes. Another person that he influenced, Mia Henson Love. Who's, oh. I watched one film from her and I was also a bit like, eh. But now I'm like really interested in her work as well. Yeah. Another person that he influenced, Noah Baumbach, <laughs> who named his son after Romare. His son's oh. name is Romare. <laughs> Which I just, it's such a funny little fun fact. <laughs> Romare 2, Electric Hong Sang Soo. <laughs> I saw Things to Come recently by Mia Hansen Love. And they, they just talk, it's just like smart people talking about smart mm. things that I yeah. do not understand that just went way <laughs> over my head. And that <laughs> when you were talking about how Romare, how he usually includes a lot of these like other texts, like outside reading <laughs> in his films, it reminded me a lot of that movie. Okay, I think we should launch into Green Ray soon, meaning now. <laughs> Wilson's talked a little bit about how much he likes the Green Ray. I'd like to hear what Eli has to say. <laughs> Because this is your first time watching anything from Romero, whereas Wilson's watched it twice now. It kind of washed over me and it was nice and I enjoyed mm -hmm. it. Ben, in his, I think, letterbox review, said that he took a nap in the middle of his first viewing. <laughs> and I did the same thing. I paused and took a nap. That's what I did today as well. <laughs> <laughs> but it was nice and gentle and not substanceless. There's a lot there. I really like what he's doing with POV glance object editing, where oftentimes you'll see Delphine looking and then you'll get close-ups of nature and the things around her. And it just made me think a lot about how her character is constructed. Outwardly to other people, you see that she can appear difficult and picky sometimes. But as a viewer, you're privileged to know her perspective a little bit more. And there was a point in the movie 
when I just thought to myself, yeah, I get it. Like I, I get mm, what Delphine yeah. is feeling and it was really nice. I think the one point when the movie lost me a little bit was the very ending. Mm -hmm. I like the idea that Delphine has to make a decision without knowing what other people feel symbolically. And I felt a little disappointed that we wound up seeing the green ray at the end. I think that might be a controversial take, but we will, <laughs> I, I'm sure, get into that. They spent a lot of money to find the green ray, by the way. Oh. <laughs> Wait, is that, is that real? That's real. Oh. That's real. The one big expense they had was to go shoot the green ray and, you know, wait for the green ray to show itself. Well, sorry. <laughs> Romero democratized the green ray, let everyone experience it together. Wow. That's beautiful. Okay. <laughs> Knowing it's real, that's cinema, baby. Did you it think it was like cinema. a little CG? Because that's what I thought the first time too. I was like, did they just paint on the frame? That's what I thought. The first time I saw it, I was like... I didn't see it. <laughs> and it was in a big movie. Like, it was in a theater. I watched it in a theater, and I was like, oh, it didn't happen. Why is she reacting that way? And I was like, oh, I, I guess I just didn't, I didn't see it. I didn't see the green ray. You missed the green ray. <laughs> I missed the titular green ray. I like things in general that challenge how much can we really understand and relate to a character? You know, in writing, especially in American cinema, they say that your character needs to have a strong want. And that way the audience will be able to understand and get on board with this character. But Delphine doesn't really know what she wants and has mm. trouble figuring it out, or at least has trouble making that clear to other people. And I like that the Green Ray forces us to contend with that and ask the question of, can you really understand a character through cinema? So now I kind of understand the green ray being at the very ending more because that's getting everyone on the same page. And it gives everyone in the audience a moment of catharsis along with Delphine. But don't you think the ending is sort of like a, she has her cake and eats it too because her decision to offer or to ask the guy to bring her to his seaside town was already her taking that leap. Hmm. And then the ray is the icing on the cake. I personally don't see it that way because I find that the man that she not ends up with, but is with at the end is not such an interesting man and not even really the right man for Delphine. I think he's just there. Yeah, I don't either. I don't either. But it's all about her mm. making that decision in the train station. It is her reaching out because throughout the film, People always reach out to her and she says no. But her taking the step forward, I think that was the moment. Mm, and then the, the Ray was just a confirmation of like, a, oh, you're you're doing the right thing, Delphine. I like that. She goes from being a reactive character to making an active choice and mm. being open and stepping out. I like that, Wilson. I don't know. I just like this movie. There's not much to say. <laughs> like, it's kind of, it's so sweet. And I want to talk a little bit about background of the Green Ray. Yeah. Because I think that kind of gives you a bit more of how to think about it and how it places itself within Romero's filmography and why it is the popular pick. So the Green Ray, which in the US was originally released under the title Summer, which is very confusing because... Later on, Romare makes A Summer's Tale. <laughs> so now it's just known as The Green Ray. It won the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival. That's the top prize over there. And its title is obviously a reference to the Jules Verne story about this real optical phenomenon. <laughs> and as part of the comedies and proverbs, the proverb that it's based on is this line from a French poet called Rimbaud. And the phrase is, 
Ah, que le temps vient où les cours se prennent. Which I was not ready for you to speak. Nice. I was not ready for you to speak French. A plus, <laughs> a plus. Yes, I knew you were ready. But it's two ways of translation which I've, I've found. One is ah for the days that set our hearts ablaze, or oh may the time come when hearts fall in love. <sighs> it's kind of a wish to fall in love, which is Delphine's wish to fall in love a little bit. But the most important thing about the Green Ray. And the thing that sets it apart from all of Romero's films is that it is, I think, the one that is most improvised. Because most of Romero's mm. films are highly scripted. This film is not. How was this film made? This film was made because Mary Rivière, who is the lead actress who plays Delphine, who I love, she met and worked with Romero, and then because they became friends, decided to work together on this film, and Romero just told her to kind of come up with the character and then she mm. was the one to call the shots and she improvised all the dialogue and the other people around her are also improvising along with her and that is why this film feels so real because it is essentially not just Delphine but it's actually Rivera putting herself on screen as herself mm. and that's why it has such a natural ease and feeling of reality and authenticity it just is it is real love that I want to talk a little bit about Rivera because we're here right now, which is how they got to know each other. And this also gives a little context as to how Romare made his films. So Rivera and Romare met after she watched Love in the Afternoon, which is the final of the Six Moral Tales. And then she wrote a letter to Romare after the film helped her make a moral decision about a relationship that she was in. <laughs> Crazy. So they met, talked, and then she wanted to be an actress. She was casted in The Aviator's Wife. And then they became friends, kept meeting up every month, every week or so. And then that's kind of how the Green Ray came up. Wow. The really interesting thing about Green Ray is that it's such a well-drawn portrait of a woman directed by a man. But the reason is because it's basically written by a woman in real time, right? Mm -hmm. In the act of improvisation. But even his other films are also, at least for me as a guy, <laughs> this is just my opinion, but they feel like very well-realized women on screen. And I found this nugget here which is how he kind of created all these characters, which is that he would spend a lot of time with young women, even when he was older. This sounds very Hi. sordid and salacious, <laughs> but let me address that. <laughs> so he would just have a lot of conversations with them, talk to them about their, their wants and their dreams, blah, 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 and how they thought. But even Revere herself kind of talked about how he kind of used the films to kind of explore his own feminine side in a sense. Mm. And I think the kind of research in terms of his conversations with him were part of that. And this is also countered with apparently a very, very solid marriage that he had. A very Catholic man. <laughs> so he was doing research, essentially. In a sense, yes. By just ha being friends with them. Yeah, research, wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> but I have a really funny quote, which is that in an interview, he divulged to an interviewer that the bit rock principle that enabled him to work so closely with these women, which, you know, their lives became part of his art. So he asked, how do you manage to have tea every day with these magnificent girls? He replied, my secret is absolute chastity. <laughs> huh. Sorry, I shouldn't have been laughed at. <laughs> yeah, but it's kind of funny to hear this. But in a sense, I guess it felt like Romero was almost like in an anthropological way looking at women and trying to present them mm. in these kind of light romantic farces. I don't know. Mm. That's kind of what I'm getting from this. So in that way, Hong Sang-soo is sort of like the immoral Romare. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> his stuff is so close to his real life that he's actually doing these things. Uncomfortably close. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of the, the Green Ray context I have. Let's talk about the Green Ray. <laughs> How to start. Okay, I have to say that I was a bit afraid of going into this. Because I wasn't sure what to talk about. Because it's such a nice movie, but there isn't that much to talk about in terms of 
like you don't need to talk about it to really enjoy this film. Mm. It's not trying too hard, which is the thing I kind of love about it. It's just it is what it is, and it is sweet and and fun to watch. My second watch, I was just paying a lot of attention to the structure of it, but even then, there's not that much to know, which is that it kind of takes on this day by day structure. The film is separated by these title cards that tell you what date it is. Mm-hmm. To give you the sense of time. I love that. Handwritten title cards, very low-key, yep. very nice. You are moving along with Delphine as she goes through her sad summer. <laughs> <laughs> and and really just getting annoyed. But I was thinking a lot more about the improvisational aspect of it. The scenes are improvised and they feel very naturalistic. But then I was thinking about the overall structure of this, which is from Romare, the scenario or the way that the story plays out comes from Romare rather than from Revere. It's very structured, right? Mm-hmm. You have three different places that she goes to, she feels sad at, she cries at, and then she goes home, Mm. right? There's actually a very simple and repetitive structure embedded in here. And then within that structure, you have this free-flowing conversations that kind of just go wherever they go. I don't know whether there's a point here, but I think it kind of shows you that even with something so improvisational, actually Romero is crafting a plot here. And you'll see this with his other films as well that we're going to see that he actually does plot, a very light plot to push these films along so they don't feel like just... Mm-hmm. A bunch of conversations strung together. The plot, usually romantic, pushes the things along. Here it's quite skeletal, quite repetitive, but it's also the thing that's pushing it along. Right. What's the goal? She wants to get a nice vacation. That's it. <laughs> but then there's also the kind of parallel plot, which is fate, mm-hmm. which is the color green. Yes. And the playing cards. And the cards she finds. Yes. The first card she finds, green. Then she talks about this overtly, which one second watch, I was like, wow, this is a little bit obvious but i'm gonna go with it because she sees the fly that's green but then i noticed something on the second watch which is that there are a few other agents of change that push delphine along where green also plays a part francois who offers her house and her family mm-hmm. is wearing green in that scene in that very long conversation where she's talking about <laughs> that's she's my being favorite scene basically. that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie when they're just arguing right yeah yeah it uh, it feels like a very authentic argument yes it really does. And one of the friends, I forgot her name, is being really harsh with Delphine. Yeah. Yeah. And Delphine's like, you're you're being mean to me. Being, <laughs> yeah. And like straight up being like, I don't like this. Stop <laughs> doing this to me. And I'm like, I would say the exact same thing in that situation. Yep. And like you're being a little a little shitty friend. It's really funny when <laughs> later on when Francois is comforting yeah. Delphine and then she's still in the background going like, you know, she's not sad because of me yeah <laughs> she, she, she said herself. i was not being mean after <laughs> after being accused of being me <laughs> a totally recognizable friend dynamic yeah but that's kind of an interesting thing about them being little time capsules of a time and place because the friendship dynamics and the emotions are still so recognizable yes mm. that lady that plays the mean friend beatrice roman one of romero's frequent collaborators you see her pop up if you follow Romare's career, she pops up a lot. And the first time she appears, she's like 17. So here she's maybe like in her late 20s, early 30s. And the last time you see her is in An Autumn Tale, which is the final of the tale seasons. And she's 40. Oh, wow. wow. I'll talk about Autumn Tale later. but <laughs> <laughs> I love her. She has one comedies and problems, but she is the lead character. Which one's that? A Good Marriage. This is basically just going to be the episode where I tell you to watch a bunch of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay, Ben. I am ready. Okay, so what else to talk about? I think I can use that scene as an example 
to talk about how Romare achieved coverage in this scene to accommodate improvisation that was taking place mm-hmm. because so many scenes in this movie are shot segmented in that you are only getting single shots of people or parts of the scene that when you cut to another shot in the scene, you don't see that character interact in the previous shot. So that allows for these conversations to go on and feel natural and for Romare to be able to cleanly cut because I'm assuming whenever they did a take, I guess the dialogue is not the same, but the sentiment is similar. So... I was assuming that he would just take like a very poignant section from one shot and then find a place to cut to in another shot that is a continuation of the same conversation, but probably not the exact same words that were said. And now knowing on my second watch that a lot of it was improvised, I was like, that's such a smart thing to do. And he holds on shots for a really long time as well. Yeah. He doesn't cut a lot in the scene. The other interesting thing to note is the random cuts to... Francois, who doesn't say a word in that first conversation, but is wearing green. (laughs) And Mm. it's a very obvious, not quite nice pastel green, and she's got way too much green going on. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting because I think he's really trying to plant this idea of fate pulling you along. This green that's quite subtle. The thing about the conversations and about improv is that I think those scenes where he meets people who are not actors, like the retirees, I Mm. think those must be completely... Not even improvised, they're just real conversations of Revere in character talking to these retirees who are just talking about themselves. And he doesn't do this very often. And I think that's a very interesting thing about this film is that because of the improvisational aspect, there is a much more documentary-like feel to it compared to any of his other contemporary films. They all feel much more scripted, much more made. Mm-hmm. whereas this one feels almost like a slightly different direction. This is the thing that I wanted to dive into as well, is the editing. So I found out that the editor is Maria Luisa Garcia, who plays Manuela at the beginning of the movie. I can't believe it. You just blew my mind with that nugget, but yeah. Really cool. <laughs> but it's my favorite kind of editing because it is based on timing and feel, and you can sense that the editing room was Garcia finding the right place to cut very organically. Mm. And I totally agree with you, Ben, that it is like documentary editing because there is footage that won't match perfectly together continuously. Mm. It's a found cut and it's a sensed cut, but it's not the kind of documentary editing that is like plot documentary where it's cutting to talking heads and that kind of thing. It's more like the editing of Frederick Wiseman, right? Especially with the beach scenes, right? Yeah. Mm, Yeah. It's like an observational documentary. Callback. Sorry to disappoint, you don't get much of that in the rest of romance films. (laughs) Because this is the first romance film I saw. And then going back to it after like going through the rest of them, I was like, whoa, this is so alien compared to the rest of his stuff. And that's why I think it feels a little special compared to the rest of his films also Mm. because it has like a little bit of a a wilder element to it. Mm. People just kind of doing their things. There's a bunch of really funny, just people like splashing in waves and stuff. And I remember there's a kid who just gets pushed into a bunch of sand, I think. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) My favorite cutaway is when she meets Lena, the Swedish girl, and they're talking. And at one point, Lena's talking about fiancés and she says, fiancés are always, you know, looking left and right, checking on you, basically. 
and being jealous. When she says looking left and right, the cutaway oh, yeah. is of two girls, mm-hmm. I think, snorkeling, and they're looking left and right. Yeah, I <laughs> and I was like, wait, this I noticed on the second watch, I was like, oh my gosh. Then I kind of was like, maybe I should be paying more attention to what they're cutting away to because I thought they were just kind of like, you know, like just stuff that's kind of around. Yeah, but that was kind of cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a playful sense of discovery, like it's putting together found objects, these shots. Mm. And I really like that spontaneous, organic, fun style of editing. Here's a question. What makes this interesting and not boring? I think it is that spontaneity and the sense that even not having known that it was improvised, the sense that it is very authentic and created amongst the actors in those spaces. Another thing that this movie has going for it is great location. There's a difference between a movie like this happening over a series of vacations in picturesque spots and like a series of living rooms. And I think a lot of it for me was the relatability of the conversations. Mm. I said I said that before, but it feels like I'm watching people that are my friends or people that I care about just discussing things like that whole conversation Mm. that she was having with the people at Francois's family where. Mm. she talked to them about why she, she doesn't eat meat, eat meat. and <laughs> they were all <laughs> critiquing her and, and she's really trying to defend herself that the back and forth in the conversations is always so exciting even though not much is being advanced in the plot just being there and being in that moment and then having little tiny glimmers of what delphine feels inside sort of start adding together through the course of the scenes, I feel like you as a viewer grow in your investment and alignment the longer Mm. you spend and the more conversations you see her have with other people. Because Mm. I feel like at the start, you're like, oh, I don't really understand her. Mm. Like, I don't know why she keeps on saying no to things. She's like such a downer. She's a party pooper. (laughs) But then the more the more that you see her interacting with these different types of people, I think a lot can be said about the types of characters that Romare and Riviere choose to pair with Delphine because they sort of bring out different sides of her even though they're maybe the reaction is the same mm. it's a, like a different kind of no um right i think painting that very full and well-rounded picture of her is engaging and then by the end you really care about her and you really want her to like enjoy herself and it really hurts that she doesn't because you understand and for me personally like i've been there like it's sad mm. to just like wallow in shit But there are some times in life where you are going through that. And just Mm. that breath of glimmer of hope at the end is such an achievement for her and and for you as the audience. You're so right. It's a very stealthy movie in that sense. (laughs) That it just sneaks up on you that you're like, wait a minute, I care about Delphine. And you mentioned this as well, Eli. Like, you just kind of get it. Yeah. It's quite difficult to put into words and it's a combination of that improvisation but also the amount of time you get to spend with Delphine in private and in public that you kind of get a sense of her. And I think they chose kind of polar opposites from Delphine to interact with her to kind of put her in uncomfortable situations that would make her feel out of place. Like, Francois is very outgoing, easygoing, and um, in love with somebody, canoodling in the background at some points. <laughs> and Lena is a very outgoing, easygoing person who is very okay with being alone, which Delphine is not. Yeah. So they're purposefully constructed to bring out Delphine's worst feelings. I was thinking now about, like, the different times you see her cry. The first time, it's kind of, like, sudden. 
it's when she's with Francois, you're like, oh, you know, she's crying. But then you see her cry a few more times, sometimes when she's alone. And I think the point that it really hit me was when she was crying in the cafe with Lena and the two strange men. And I think the reason it hit me is because like when you talk about the meat scene, the meat scene is very interestingly constructed because it's so subtle how she's being mocked. Mm -hmm. Everyone is very, very nice, but she's constantly being mocked very lightly until like you start to understand why she can't take it and she wants to leave. She doesn't say why she leaves, but you know why she's leaving, right? She's not comfortable. And then you know in that cafe scene, without even a shot on her, how uncomfortable she is just watching Lena flirt with this guy. I don't even know his name. <laughs> oh, we we go to the discotheque. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <I> speak English. <laughs> and then she you know, runs off, and you you get it. Like, you know why she runs off? Like fuck these two guys, and she doesn't care. It just builds, like you said, Wilson. Like this very strong sense of investment in her and. At some points, I just feel like I'm Delphine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You're just like, I'm Delphine. The other thing that puts pressure on her to be okay, aside from the people around her, again, is those locations. They're so glorious mm. and lush and beautiful and populous, and everyone's having fun on vacation. So why shouldn't she be happy? But yeah. of course, that mm. makes it worse. Yeah. And that's why the ending is, through this conversation, feeling more and more to me like an act of kindness on the character of Delphine, Mm -hmm. that it is very purposely breaking the style of the movie. It's worth noting that the sky, when Delphine is sitting with her new suitor on the cliff, and then the reverse shot is of the sky of the setting sun getting closer and closer to the green ray, the sky color does not match across those two shots. Mm -hmm. It is very... (laughs) purposefully breaking the grammar of the movie there is not a ton of shot reverse shot previously in the movie in order to give delphine this fanciful nice moment and a thing that she wants which is some certainty in order to make her decision to be open and step out and be vulnerable with someone else i love the ending because it's abrupt Mm. because Mm. when you really step back nothing really happens in this movie that's what everyone says about Romero films nothing really happens and this is (laughs) his most nothing really happens film (laughs) most films people realize stuff and then you see the consequence here she realizes something has an epiphany changes a feeling and then the movie ends and there's a very pleasant open-ended quality to it like there's some catharsis there as you said, Eli, but then it's leaving it kind of open. You kind of wish you could follow Delphine after, but you can't. And then there's that yearning kind of makes it a little bit of an experience that sticks with you. Mm. This isn't the only Romare film that will make you feel this way mm. because he tends to essentially stretch out a very, very simple, small plot over a feature length and then ends earlier than most people would. Whenever a movie ends ambiguously or unresolved in some fashion, it makes me wonder why not show us the thing that we maybe Mm. want to see, which is Delphine ending up happy. I think it returns to exactly what Wilson was saying. The point is that she's opening herself up and taking a step out into the world. Oh, it Mm. makes me want to cry. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) I'm so Uh, happy for her. The keystone of this entire film is just Rivera's performance. That's really all it is. Yep. I think it's as much a Romero film than it is a Riviere film. Yes. Hmm. If anything, it's more Rivera film when you think about it. Because like she creates such a strong presence in this and she is really just being herself. And I feel like we always talk about naturalistic acting and like what is acting. And here the performance doesn't really feel like a performance. It really is just watching somebody being themselves. Yeah. And that is really inviting and being able to just sit with them and get to know them is just nice. 
I think if you just like watching people, which the three of us do watching Wiseman films, <laughs> you'll like Romero. <laughs> yeah. And especially this film, which is, I think, the most people watchy of his films. That's all I really have, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't have too much else to say. It's, again, it's a nice movie and I really enjoyed it and it was calming. Also, there's so much quotable dialogue in this movie. It's really <laughs> I took a great. screenshot that I that I just loved, which was it's Delphine as she's talking to Francois's friends about vegetarianism <laughs> and she just says, "A lettuce is a friend." And she looks so <laughs> earnest. She's conveying to them her feelings about lettuce. Yeah. It's really funny cuz she says that the reason she eats vegetables is cuz they're friends. Yeah. And they and they're light and airy. I love that. <laughs> But not airy. <laughs> airy, but not airy. As airy, said. but not airy. <laughs> Delphine is just kind of a precious person. Yeah. You know what I mean? She just kind of has her own ideas and she wants to have a man because that's what would make her happy. But she's actually such an individualistic person. Mm. And that's the thing I love about her. Like she is willing to say no to things. She will just do what she wants. Yes. And even though she's quite timid, she's very hit strong. It's a confusing blend on paper, but... It makes sense. Like she has that headstrong nature where she just wants to get what she wants. Yeah. Wants to make herself happy. And that's despite being kind of timid and shy and feeling like she gets pushed around a lot, whether by fate or other people. That's something that makes her very endearing because, you know, she tries and she has convictions and principles when it's about vegetables. (laughs) (laughs) It's ridiculous that it's such a long scene and just her talking about not eating meat. (laughs) I think the first time I watched it, I was like, what is going on here? <laughs> but again, stealthily, I think that gets us onto her page because it yeah. shows us what she is about and it shows us something mm. that she's passionate about. Yeah. And at the same time, it shows us other people not respecting that passion, which makes us want her to be respected. Especially when they pushed that plate of flowers on her. Uh, yeah. That, that I was thinking, that must be a planned moment in the scene. Mm. Because why would your freaking art designer have a plate of flowers for you to improv with? That must have been decided. Well, side note, flowers are delicious. Orchids are really tasty. I don't Wait, just what? go around eating flowers off of people's <laughs> lawns. Just snacking on But them. when they're served on a plate, it's really tasty. I didn't know wow. that. I've never eaten flowers. I rarely eat flowers even when they're like presented to me in a restaurant. Hey, everything on a plate has to be edible. That's the rule. Says who? Ratatouille? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, Chef Gusteau. Even though sushi fake grass. Oh, well. (laughs) Wait, those aren't edible? (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) This is all I have for this film. I love Mary Revere. I was thinking about it lately. I was like, man, if I met her, I would just cry. (laughs) (laughs) I was just like Googling her because she's so cool. And she has like a whole website and she's still like in short films and stuff and still acting here and there. Oh my God. And she never became huge, you know? And I don't think she really wanted to become like a huge famous actress. I can't believe she just like basically the modern equivalent of sending a DM to a director being like, your film changed my life. <laughs> and then became his his leading actor. And Romero's like, all right, you want to come talk about stuff? Yeah. <laughs> this is not the only time this has happened with Romero, by the way. Oh. In um, okay, let me go into recommendations, and then I can. Yeah, throw like 20, 20 Romero <laughs> films at us. <laughs> if you like the Green Ray because you like Rivera, two options. The Aviator's Wife. This is the first time working with Romero playing this woman called Anna. I read the plot of that, and it sounds really good. <laughs> 
some people really like the aviator's wife i am a bit cold on it i like it but not as much as other people i want to see it again and then there's an autumn tale which is as i said the last contemporary film with rivera and roman playing best friends who are in their 40s oh and it's so moving to just watch them older doing romero's last film set in so-called contemporary time if you like summer you can watch a summer's tale which is essentially a male version of green ray but completely inverted if the green ray is about a woman who is sad going to summer and doesn't meet any men that she likes a summer's tale is about a dude who doesn't want to do anything goes summer and then has three women and he's trying to deal with all three of them and it's like what the fuck (laughs) and apparently that's the one that's the most autobiographical Hmm. (laughs) okay and then here's my last recommendation which is if you like just watching women doing stuff and being friends which this one has a bit of that watch the four adventures of mirabelle and renette which is one of his least plot heavy films it's just four (laughs) vignettes mary rivera is also in there as a little cameo and this one came up because one of the lead actresses came up to Romero at some point and just couldn't stop talking and then that intrigued Romero, and then he was like i guess start writing this part for her of this woman who just likes to talk a lot <laughs> so these are my recommendations i just need to be more annoying to directors guys <laughs> yeah just like be up in their face yeah that's how I make it. You gotta it. be interesting. Uh, I guess. <laughs> Are you interesting, Wilson? <laughs> I guess. I guess. I am not. <laughs> Thank you for introducing me to Romero, Ben. I'm really excited to watch more of his movies. Yes. Thank you, Ben. I'm You're welcome. I think it's gonna be a fun three episodes. Yeah. Maybe five. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> 22. Maybe 22. <laughs> So yeah, that's The Green Ray. Maybe Romero's most popular film that like everyone knows about. But I can't wait to go into a few deep cuts. And I believe next episode, we're going to be talking about the last of his six moral tales, which is 11 in the Afternoon, which is one of my favorite Romero films. Aye, aye, Captain. Definitely, to me at least, the best of the six moral tales. That's going to be really interesting because that has a male protagonist. Oh. And you'll get to meet a Romarian man. And spoiler alert, they're always kind of annoying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's going to be the same thing with Hong. I love all Hong women and I despise yes. all Hong men. <laughs> That's kind of how it is with Romare. And I was just thinking after watching an Autumn Tale yesterday that how the fuck does he just come up with these new unique women characters who you just fall in love with? Because, at least for me, the experience of falling in love with some of his films is just falling in love with the characters that he has created. Mm. Once you fall in love with that character, you're gone. You're done. Mm. (laughs) Like, you're in love with the film. Because (laughs) the film is just the experience of the character. And you're like, okay. (laughs) That about wraps it up for The Green Ray. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at DeepCutPod. And talk to us about movies on our Discord server. Maybe tell us what your favorite Romero film is. Because I feel like everyone's is different. And thank you to Justine and Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. Take care and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. Everybody loves Green Ray. <laughs> <laughs> Green Raymond. Deborah. <laughs> <laughs>